Our reading today comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 4. And in the church Bibles, that's on page 888. And in the large print Bibles, 1343. We'll be reading from verses 1 through to 18, and then from 33 to 37. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a tree. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them this dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it food for all. Under, the, under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones desire the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. 
Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy God is in you. Daniel then proceeds to interpret the dream, and subsequently the dream is fulfilled. And we continue the reading on verse 33. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. May the Lord have his blessing to that reading from his word. Thank you, Tom. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning. And a particularly warm welcome if you're here visiting or you've been away through the summer. It's great to have you here. Um, We're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 4. This little series will go on until the end of chapter 6. And then hopefully we'll return to it, God willing, uh, later next year. Um, But we're in chapter 4. Uh, another great chapter. So let me pray, and then we'll dive in and uh, have a look at it together. Heavenly Father, we read in your word that you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. So I pray this morning by your spirit, you would oppose the pride that lies within each of us, and by your spirit, grow within us the grace that makes us more like Jesus. Thank you for this amazing passage, and where it's difficult to understand, please give us eyes to see the truth that's hidden within it. And please, most of all, would the things that we learn together this morning uh, shape our lives and make us humble this week. Amen. Great. Well, uh, this is the picture we've returned to a few times now, and we're on the fourth week. You've seen it four times now. Um, What does it feel like for many people here to effectively be like a a red dot in a gray world? If you're a a follower of Jesus, you'll often feel outnumbered. You'll feel in the minority. Um, It's often not easy. Uh, The second week we looked at the question or the statement, there is a God and he is not silent and he has spoken into our world. He's revealed himself so that we can know who he is and he is building an eternal kingdom. And that gave us great confidence that what he is doing with this church and the churches across the world is something which nothing can stop. And then last week we asked the question, um, are you making a stand for Jesus? 
Are you prepared to stick your neck above the parapet and make a stand for Jesus and live for him? And I suggested that perhaps for most of us, that's not going to be so much, at the moment at least in this country, a public corporate thing. It might be much more of a subtle thing, day to day, making a stand for Jesus. And I asked you towards the end of last week um, to just look out for times this week where maybe you could be conscious of moments where you have a choice to make a stand for Jesus or just take the comfortable route. And I wonder how you got on this week. Uh, my week was probably quite mixed, if I'm honest, um, but it was a good thing to think about. So we're thinking in this chapter about true worship. Uh, when you read the book of Revelation, that in heaven we will worship God forever and ever, day and night. I wonder how that makes you feel. Because if we think of worship being maybe an endless church service or endless sort of series of songs, I love singing, I love being at church, but doing that endlessly, I think, would be quite difficult. But that's not what worship's about, because worship is not so much um, a kind of function of what I do, it's more a reflection of a transformed heart. So when we read in Revelation that heaven will be a place of perfect worship, it's a place where our hearts are perfectly transformed, and all relationships are as they should be. Suddenly that takes on a whole new picture, doesn't it, in terms of thinking about why I want to be in heaven. Worship like that is an exciting place to be. And so I ask us the question, what is your ultimate reality? What is it that drives your life that is your, your ultimate, the most important thing in your life? And we talked about the need for all of us to have our hearts transformed so that God kind of lifts us out of our story. I'm born, I live, I die. And he lifts us into his biggest story to tell us the story that he's telling which gives our life uh, more meaning, more purpose, more security. And we were thinking about the need for God to so captivate our hearts that we're transformed by a bigger vision so we can live for something bigger than ourselves, more permanent than ourselves. So as we look at this character Nebuchadnezzar, remember he's the king of Babylon. He is the king in charge of the great nation of Babylon where God's people have been taken off into exile. As we look at Nebuchadnezzar, We kind of get a glimpse, has he been transformed? So come with a few examples with me to Daniel. We looked at this one last week, chapter 2, verse 47. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And you're thinking, well, has he been converted? We looked at this last week. And the answer was no, because you get to the beginning of chapter 3, and he builds this great big statue, remember, 90 foot tall, that's as high as an eight-story building. And he says to everyone, come and worship this image that I have made. So Nebuchadnezzar's heart clearly hasn't been transformed. Uh, Then last week, let's ask the question again. Has he been converted? Chapter 3, verse 16. He starts off when he throws these three men, Daniel's friends, into the fiery furnace. And he kind of mocks them and says in verse 16, uh, who's who's going to be able to save you? Sorry, it's not verse 16. It's um, 15, thank you. What God is able to rescue you from my hand? And then you come on to verse 29. And we read, Therefore I decree that the people of every nation and language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces. So he's, he's changing his mind. He then says, No other God can save in this way. But then you get to chapter 4, and he de- makes this great declaration again. How great are his signs. This is speaking of the living God. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. But then, as you get through our reading, chapter 4, verse 18, notice what he says. Speaking to Daniel, he says, You can understand my dream because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So he hasn't yet understood. 
He still believes there are lots of gods. He believes Daniel's just got the spirit of one of the gods, maybe of all the gods of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar's having an experience of God. He's learning something, but his heart hasn't yet been changed. And we're going to see what his problem is. And really, to sum up Nebuchadnezzar's problem, he sees himself as a self-made man in a self-made world. Have a look at chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. And I put it on the screen there, and I've highlighted all the references to I, my, me. Nebuchadnezzar feels like he is a self-made man in a self-made world. And his world is his story that we looked at a few weeks ago. All that he sees is his world, and everything focuses around him. And in these few words here, we see so many different examples of him being at the center. Let's come to our passage, and we're going to look at it in four ways. First of all, I just want us to see what this vision is that um, Nebuchadnezzar has. Notice verse 4. He starts off being very contented. Here's the king who's got everything, and he's in his palace, and he's probably thinking, this is another day, and I love my life because I'm in charge of everything. But then verse 5 tells us he became very afraid. And what's made the difference from being contented to being very afraid? God has spoken into his life, and it has rocked his world. He's had this dream that's completely shaken him to the core. He was contented. He's now afraid because God has spoken. We looked at it week two, didn't we? There is a God, and he is not silent. And what's in this vision? Verse 10, there's this enormous tree. He says, I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. Notice verse 12, it was a beautiful tree and very abundant. And then in verse 13 and 14, this messenger or this holy one calls out and says, this great tree that you've seen in your dream is going to be cut down. It's going to be stripped of its branches and all the fruit is just going to be scattered everywhere. And then you read in the middle of verse 15, let him, which is a little indication that whatever's going on in this dream is a picture of a person. This great tree is a picture of a person. And what does it say in this vision? Let him... Be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals amongst the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. And your mind's probably going, what is all this about? This is weird. What we see here is there's this dramatic change from this kind of unidentified man who has got great splendor and glory and power, and suddenly he's stripped of it all depicted in the dream by the tree that is cut down, the branches removed, and the fruit that is scattered everywhere. But notice what the dream is a declaration about, verse 17. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. And so Nebuchadnezzar then comes to Daniel in verse 18, and he says, Daniel, what does all this mean? I do not understand, but I was contented. Now I'm very afraid. God has spoken. I have no idea what this is about. Can you help me? His world's been rocked. And we learn as we carry on in the dream that truth, that God is there and he is not silent. And the God who is there who's not silent, when he speaks into our world, can sometimes shake our world Now just take a step away from all this kind of bizarre imagery. Think about how dreams work. Dreams fill our minds, don't they, with a great vision. They kind of paint a big picture. And dreams and visions move our spirits. They kind of draw us in and they move us. They're not just descriptions which we kind of say, oh, nice, but they actually move us. I'll give you a couple of examples. This first picture is quite a horrific one. I won't say anything about it, but it depicts one of the images from the Holocaust. 
And as I show you this image, just imagine this was your dream. How does it make you feel? Do you see what a, a picture can do? You look at that picture and it stirs your emotion. We're all thinking different things to the extent that we understand what was going on. Here's a second one. This was a famous painting or photograph, I think it started as, that was taken in 1993 of a Sudanese famine. You might have heard of this picture. This photo was called The Little Girl and the Vulture. It's horrific, isn't it? But as you look at that picture, does it not stir up emotions in you? And then the last one that's perhaps more famous... The point of a vision or a dream is it stirs emotions. It expresses truths in a way that maybe just written prose can't. It moves our spirits to engage with what is going on. And that's exactly what happens here with Nebuchadnezzar. God is wanting to speak very powerfully into his life. So he gives him this bizarre dream that kind of rocks his world. And he's thinking, what is it all about? And then God uses Daniel to come and speak into his life to interpret the dream and to shake Nebuchadnezzar's world. So that's the vision. But the really important thing is, what does it all mean? Because it's all very well having a great vision. What does it mean? Well, come to verse 19. Uh, Belteshazzar, that is um, Daniel, who's been given this Babylonian name, answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Here it comes, verse 22. Your majesty, you are that tree. (laughs) Suddenly Nebuchadnezzar is frozen. What is going on? You have become great and strong, he goes on. Your greatness has grown up until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. And we saw that, didn't we, last week, with this great image, eight stories high, that Nebuchadnezzar invited the whole world to come and worship. He felt like his dominion did extend to the ends of the earth. He felt like he was the king of everything. But his world is rocked where God speaks through Daniel to him and says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree that was cut down. And suddenly in his all, great, all his greatness, he's feeling very, very small and insecure. And then Daniel continues to drop the bomb, verse 24. He says, your majesty, and this is the decree the most high has issued against my lord, the king. This is where it gets difficult for the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. So this is a picture of this great king coming from a great palace. And suddenly now he's going to be living a kind of wild, unsheltered existence with the animals. Huge change. Seven times will pass by for you. That's just a reference for a set time that God only controls. A set time will come until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its root means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. This great king who feels like he's the king of the whole world, but God who is not silent speaks into his life, wakes him up, and he suddenly feels his heart is arrested. What is going on? And he's told that he is this great tree that's going to be cut down. 
This dream is telling this great king that there's only one sovereign. There's only one most high. And before where he's declared of Daniel, the spirit of the gods is in you. He hasn't understood. There are not lots of gods. There is one God. And he is Daniel's God. And Nebuchadnezzar has now come face to face with him. He thought he was a self-made man in a self-made world. And often you and I can feel like self-made people in a self-made world. And as we look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar, it's very humbling. Because we recognize that we were never created to be Lord of our own lives. And we recognize that we can't be Lord of our lives. Because there's only one sovereign. Have a think about the Christian gospel. The good news of how you and I who've been cut off from God can know God again through Jesus. How we can be forgiven. How we can enter into a new relationship with God. The gospel at its very heart is a declaration that Jesus Christ rules. He smashed death to pieces when he died and then rose again. Jesus Christ rules. And the gospel declares that he is king. The gospel too is a great declaration that the penalty for your sin and my sin has been paid for. Because Jesus declared on the cross those incredible words, it is finished. It's an amazing declaration of his lordship. And then the gospel appeals to our heart. And as we've looked at a few weeks ago, the gospel appeals to our heart because it captivates our heart to lift us out of our story, to understand that there's a bigger story, his story, God's story, and to see how our life and God's life is designed to be interwoven. One writer has called this the expulsive power of a new affection. And we looked at this, didn't we, with a sort of diagram I painted last week. God created man to enjoy good things. And when good things become God, they rule over us, and God's just a good thing. And the expulsive power of a new affection is saying there needs to be a power that can give us a new affection, something that's greater than something that we set our heart on, something that's more beautiful, more permanent, more perfect. And that greater power is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to understand who he is, it's an expulsive power because it expels the power of living for something that's not him and puts him back in his rightful place. Uh, The expulsive power of a new affection. And so when we talk about proclaiming the gospel to people who don't yet know it, look at the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. Look what he says. We've renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception. We don't distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. But he goes on in verse 4 of this chapter to explain the problem. We've looked at this many times before. The God of this age, which is a reference to Satan and all his devices, what's he done? He's blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Which means until God shines his light into our heart and reveals Jesus to us, he's just a good thing at best, if not a swear word or nothing. But when the God of the universe shines his light into our heart, he shows us who Jesus Christ is, for who he really is. And suddenly this is the new affection that captures our heart. And that's where the expulsive power comes in, because he suddenly, we recognize, has greater value than anything else in this world. We recognize that he loves us more than anything in this world could ever love us. We recognize that he's more perfect than anything And when God created us to set our heart's affection on him, he did it because he loves us, and he knows that that is where we'll be most satisfied. So in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, as we come back to the dream, the God who is there, who is not silent, shakes Nebuchadnezzar's world because he speaks into his world and says, I am here, Nebuchadnezzar, 
And I will humble you because there's only room for one God in your life. And I am that God. That is not an expression of a kind of vindictive father with like God with a big stick who kind of beats his children. I will make you love me. It's the words of a loving father who says, I made you and I know what's best for you. I know that your heart was created to be centered on me. And when it is, you'll enjoy all the good things of your life more because you recognize I gave them to you. God is not a God in heaven who beats us with a stick saying, love me because he's jealous of um, wanting our love. The Bible does talk about him being jealous, but it's meant in a different sense. It's in a sense of he is jealous for our love because he knows that when we censor our affections on him, first and foremost, that is the most freeing place to be. Well, let's look at the results. We've seen the vision. We've seen the meaning. What's the result? Well, verse 29, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar has 12 months to ponder this great dream that's rocked his world. And no doubt over those 12 months, it's been quite a lonely existence. What does this all mean? I am that tree, it's been cut down. What's going on? But we read a great tragedy in verse 29 and verse 30. And so so often I think this is a reflection of our own hearts and certainly the reflection of people in the world. Verse 29, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power, And for the glory of my majesty. Despite everything that God has said, he still is able to walk away 12 months later and go, I'm a self-made man in a self-made world. And God can say what he likes, but I'm still king. And I built this big statue and it's eight stories high. I'm in charge. Don't forget Babylon was impressive. We looked at this in week one. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was an impressive place. Of course it was. But Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar's place and he had built it and he ruled over it and nobody including the living God was going to strip that authority from him or so he thought but then we see that actually there is only one God and it's not Nebuchadnezzar because the warning he gave to him comes true in verse 33 immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled he was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his hands like the claws of a bird. It's pretty bizarre what's going on, isn't it? But remember, this is a, a big picture that's telling a story. He's suddenly taken from this place of pride where he says, I'm a self-made man in a self-made world. And he's suddenly humiliated because his existence now is living amongst the animals, eating what the animals eat, looking like what the animals look like. This is not a place of dignity. This is not a place of freedom. This is not a place of happiness. But God in his loving judgment takes this one who fails to recognize the most high God and in a sense makes him the very lowest. Gives him what he wants. If you don't recognize me as Lord, you be Lord. But this is where you end up. So think about this for a minute. What is is one thing that you and I share in common with the animal kingdom? Flesh and blood. We are animals. But there's something very significant that we do not share with the animal kingdom, which is why we read in the book of Genesis when God created everything. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good when he created you and me. Because you and I are made in the image of God, which means that we are flesh and blood, but we also have a soul. And God's spirit is at work in the people he has created to make us more like him. And so here, where God acts in judgment over Nebuchadnezzar, he says, 
if you become less godlike, if you refuse to take on this image and bear my image and allow my spirit to grow my image within you, you become beast-like. You just become like the animals. You're just another created thing. And that's an awful place to be because God created you and me to be different and he set his affection on you and me, made in his image. And we saw this last week, didn't we? I think this is one of the most important passages you'll read anywhere in the Bible because it describes what goes on in all of our hearts when we say I'm a self-made person in a self-made world. That kind of thinking, Paul says, is futile. And it comes from foolish hearts that have become darkened. And here's where it really kicks against the world and perhaps against my heart and your heart. They became fools. Paul is saying you are foolish if you set yourselves up against the living God. But they're the words that come later, words we didn't look at last week. Chapter 1 of the book of Romans, verse 24. And you read these terrible words, God gave them over to. When we refuse to acknowledge that God is the most high, what he does is he gives us the desire of our heart. He says, okay, I will give you over to the desires of your own heart. But all that will do is lead you further away from God. So do you see the, the terrible thing that sin does? What sin actually does is it dehumanizes us. It makes us less human. Because sin is something that takes us away from being made in the image of God. And it makes us less like God. And it makes us less able to love God. And less able to accept the love that he has for us. And so if you look at pride, where does pride ultimately take us? It ultimately takes us away from God. Think about that. If I allow pride to grow up in my life, it will lead me away from the living God because pride will make me think I am more important than I am. And there's only one who's truly important, that's the living God. So here's a, a series of sort of questions for you to reflect on. How, how is pride damaging your heart? I've spent a lot of time this week reflecting on this in my own life, so I'm not speaking this to you as if I haven't applied this first to myself. But how is pride damaging you, perhaps? Um, prayerlessness is often a, a symptom of pride we don't pray because actually we think we're in more control than we really are oh, I don't need to pray sometimes we can be poor listeners can't we we love to talk we're slow to listen and sometimes when we're slow to listen and we're just talking all the time it's an expression of pride I love to hear the sound of my own voice I don't want to listen to other people Sometimes in, in the life of a church, it can be the role or position we have. Maybe you're a ministry leader or an elder or a pastor or a member of staff, and we can take pride in that position. And it's never right to do that. Sometimes it can be bitterness where we refuse to forgive, particularly in a Christian community. A refusal to forgive can sometimes be a symptom of pride. And yet we look at the cross and the Lord Jesus never refused to forgive us. Sometimes we can treat God a bit like a kind of slot machine. If I'm honest, God doesn't really feature in my life. As soon as there's a problem, chink, and I pray, and I want God just to be there. But then the rest of the time, he doesn't feature. It can sometimes be a symptom of pride. And maybe we can all be guilty of different ways of being dependent on our wealth and what we have, rather than truly dependent on God. If only I had this, I'd be more secure, more happy. Just different ways that pride can damage. And we just need to be careful and, and spend some time honestly thinking, how, how does pride exhibit in my life? Because I'm sure it's something we're all guilty of. 
I've asked um, Jane Goldsmith, just from where she's seated, to read a prayer. This is a prayer about pride by a lady called Beth Moore, who's a wonderful teacher. And she's written uh, a great little book called Praying the Scriptures. I've just taken some sort of excerpts from this book and from this particular chapter. Um, just allow Jane's words to reflect in your own heart as she reads. Thank you, Jane. Father, according to your word, in their pride, the wicked does not seek you. In all their thoughts, there is no room for you. Please help me to always make room in my thoughts for you, God. Don't allow me to continue on in pride that stops me from seeking you. Keep me Christ-minded, always casting my cares upon you. Father, please help me to have a healthy fear of you that destroys pride and arrogance. Put a guard at the door of my mouth that I would not hurt others by my arrogance or pride. Father, you're teaching me that pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Help me to see my pride when I am quarrelsome. Help me to have a teachable heart. Lord, humility is casting all my cares upon you, for you care for me. It is recognizing I am not almighty or all-powerful, that I have a need for you and your guidance and help. Please help me not to be too proud to ask for help from you or from others. Father, your word says that pride hardens the heart. You de your desire for me is that I be tender-hearted and that my gentleness would be made known to all. Please melt any hardness in my heart. Expose any bitter root so that I may repent of it. Fill me with your love and gentleness and peace that I can be loving to others. Pour out your mercy and grace upon me, O Lord, that I can be this kind of person. Change my heart to be like yours, Father. Amen. It's a wonderful prayer, isn't it? Uh, perhaps I might send that to Helen and, and she could send it around to people in the church and we can spend more time this week reflecting on um, those challenging words. But this chapter's been sort of heavy. It's a difficult chapter. It's very challenging. But I want to end on a note of hope and the chapter does that and that's the wonderful thing that the gospel gives us. Hope. Have a look at verse 34. In the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Isn't that a lovely picture? I was a self-made man in a self-made world. This was my Babylon. I was in control. But when God, by his grace, transformed my heart, it lifted me out of myself and I was able to raise my head to heaven and maybe begin to see God for who he really is. There's this, at least a beginning of a true heart transformation going on in Nebuchadnezzar. And then we see that verse 34. I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation so if pride takes us away from God and turns us in on ourselves what God's grace does is it turns us out of ourselves and brings us back to God and that's the grace that only the cross of Jesus can achieve in our life pride takes us away from God and turns us in on ourselves but the gospel of grace will lift us out of ourselves and turn us back to God and that is where we have hope friends 
all the peoples of the earth, verse 35, are regarded as nothing. So here Nebuchadnezzar begins to see that he is a creature, not the creator. He's not a self-made man in a self-made world. He is God's made man in God's world. And then he goes on, he says, God, doesn't, uh, God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand and say to him, what have you done? That's a remarkable thing for Nebuchadnezzar now to say. But he recognizes that he's not Lord of his life. And then I love the phrase you get in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. They're wonderful words, aren't they? And they're challenging words to us. And the funny thing in this story is that next week, as we go into chapter 5, we meet the king that succeeded Nebuchadnezzar. We don't actually find out ultimately what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, but we've seen him on a journey, and perhaps he has been truly converted, and there's been a genuine heart transformation. We don't know. But I think maybe that's deliberately left to us to think, what happened to him? Uh, Maybe for us to reflect on his life and go, so what's happened to me? Have I been truly transformed by the grace of God? To close and to help us to look at the humility of our Lord Jesus, through whom this transformation can take place, would you just turn forward in your Bible to the book of 1 Timothy? I'm just going to look at a couple of verses together as I close. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 12. This really is a wonderful verse that in a sense will help us all to, I don't know, bathe in the mercy of God. To understand that you and I, through Jesus, can be rescued and can be given a completely new heart and see more clearly who Jesus Christ is. Let me close by reading these words. This is the Apostle Paul talking to a young man called Timothy. Timothy is leading the church in Ephesus, which is in Turkey. And he writes this to encourage Timothy. And I want to encourage us all as we close with this. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Friends, that is the gospel, and it's the gospel that lifts us out of ourselves and turns us away from a life of pride and begins to grow within us all greater humility. Let's pray and ask that God would indeed begin and continue that work in us all. Father, your word says that you oppose the proud and we saw in this chapter how in love you oppose the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, in a moment of quiet, we all want to reflect and just acknowledge in our own hearts those areas of our life where we are conscious of being proud and we ask for your forgiveness for these things. 
The Bible says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Father, that though you oppose the pride in us all, thank you that it is you who gives grace to the humble. And I pray that you would grow greater grace in each of us as individuals, that you would grow greater grace and humility in us as a church. And we thank you that there is great hope at the end of this chapter that when you work in our hearts and show us who you are, you lift our eyes out of ourselves and we fix our eyes on the living God. Thank you that you are the one who is perfect, who is beautiful, who is perfectly humble, perfectly just, perfectly loving. And I pray this week that you would help us to fix our eyes on you and to build our hope on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Amen.